So, so through through this practice in this retreat, a uh, number of things are going on. Hopefully, going on. And one is uh, the cultivation of the metta. We could say the awakening of the heart, the awakening of a different way of being in the world. We could uh, say that. And the development of the metta, the deepening of the metta, as a gift, as a healing for ourselves and for the world. And all the benefits that that brings, all the beauty that brings. And we've talked also about the samadhi and the development of that and the benefits of that. And um, in this retreat in particular, how love uh, develops insight. How love itself and the development of love leads to insight. We'll be talking more about that. But in this talk, what I want to go into a little bit is how insights can lead to love, how insights can, uh, the process of insight can feed and nourish the process of metta and compassion. So, nourishing love through insight. It can seem at first uh, that what we're doing in this practice is we're, uh, you know, sort of putting in lots of huff and puff and, and kind of uh, building up some meta, creating some meta, creating love. And in a sense, that's true. Meta is a fabrication. It's true, uh, and all things are fabrications, and uh, meta is a fabrication. But what can also seem uh, also seem to be the case, and it can uh, move towards this uh, becoming clearer, is that perhaps love, meta, compassion, is the natural state, the natural expression, when w- the mind, the consciousness, is not clouded by clinging and ignorance. When the clinging is relaxed, the metta is there, the compassion is there, the love is there. And as ignorance, as this misunderstanding of our the nature of the self, the nature of the world, the nature of things, as that begins to dissolve a little bit, and the moments when that's not there so strong, then, then the love is there as a natural state, a natural expression. So when we talk about insight, when we talk about insight, um, oftentimes we, you know, we use this word and we say insight meditation, and, and, and sometimes it sort of, what, what's actually meant there? Uh, insight to me is that which releases clinging. Okay, So there's clinging, there's constricting ourselves around something, inner or outer, pushing it away, pulling it towards us, holding onto it, struggling with it. Uh, and clinging brings with it suffering. And insight is that which, uh, either through an intellectual understanding, through reflection, just an intuitive sense, uh, some very organic sense, at any level at all, fairly easy or superficial, right down to the depths of understanding, releases that clinging and therefore releases suffering. So that's what insight is. And the Buddha's enormously interested in this, and it's He's interested in ways of seeing 
ways of seeing ourselves, our lives, the moment, ways of seeing and relating that bring this release. And with the release, with the release from clinging, comes love. Comes love. The ways of looking that bring a release of clinging and bring with, with that love. And so what I want to go into a little bit is perhaps a possibility of incorporating some of that into the into the meta practice and, and the practice of compassion. So we can uh, see in our lives when there this, this hopefully will get should get more and more clear as, as our understanding deepens. When there's uh, clinging or aversion, there's less love. So a very obvious. Uh, one is fear. Fear is a kind of clinging, it's a kind of aversion, a kind of constriction. When that's around, uh, it kind of blocks love. It blocks our capacity uh, to love, a capacity of openness of heart, of connection. And we can actually see that love and fear have a kind of um, inversely proportional relationship, as the mathematicians say. You know, more fear kind of the less accessibility to love. And love has a way of actually uh, dissolving fear, can do. Conversely, you can see in, the, in ourselves, certainly, and, and in the world and in others, uh, how much, when there's a lot of fear, oftentimes there's a lot of uh, anger right there, a lot of violence right there. You just have to open the newspaper to, to see a lot of that. Um... Couple, a little over a couple of years ago, I, I, I had uh, good fortune to to meet uh, someone in India. Uh, not a, not a spiritual person at all. Didn't regard himself that way. Very sort of humanist person. And, uh, I and a, 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 some friends, about ten or twelve of us, had gone out to work at. Uh, leprosy community in, in Maharashtra in India and um, spent about a month there and met the guy who started who started this uh, community and his name's Baba Amte and his story is quite it's quite remarkable but it kind of illustrates this relationship between fear and love and uh, he as he as he'd grown up very rich one of these very wealthy sort of Indian uh, arist- aristocratic and got a job as a lawyer at some point, and then met Gandhi uh, when he was a young man, and somehow moved towards uh, representing the, the disenfranchised in India. So he was, uh, I think, living in Calcutta and and representing the pe- the the workers who clean out the sewers in Calcutta. So you can kind of imagine what, what uh, conditions they were living in. He was trying to represent them legally. And Gandhi said to him at one point, uh, if you want to understand someone, you have to step into their shoes for a while. So he took that, he took Gandhi at his words, and he got a job uh, down there cleaning the sewers in Calcutta. You can imagine... And one day, and he decided to do that for a year, and one day he was coming home at night in the dark uh, from, from a day's working in the sewers, and he tripped over something in the road, and he looked down, 
and he saw that it was a man lying in the in the road, abandoned and dying of leprosy in its in its final stages. And uh, he was saw this man there and was so horrified that he just ran home. He just just immediate kind of knee-jerk response and he ran he ran uh, to his home. And when he arrived home, kind of out of breath, he sort of got there and he realized, oh, what have I done? And he uh, sort of gathered himself and went back, found the man, picked him up, took him home and uh, nursed him until you know, in, in the days of, until he died and was with him in that period and he had already seen this kind of relationship between fear and love and, and the closing or, or the closing that can come with fear and he said that was really a turning point for him and so he gave up his job as a lawyer and he uh, he somehow bent the ear of the Maharashtran government uh, to give him a piece of desert scrubland, and he and his wife and two baby boys, uh, I think, four four lepers and a lame cow, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this ragtaggle mob, went to this scrub piece of desert, basically in Maharashtra, and they started mostly him started to build this community. And that was, I think, in the early 50s, and I went there a few years ago. And amazing what's been built there. Uh, 5,000 people or something live there. They've completely um, self, uh, self-subsistent self in, in uh, many things. Beautiful place, a lot of joy there. And remarkable to meet this man. I mean, this is kind of extraordinary, you know. Most of us, maybe, it's not how we can only appreciate that, but uh, to meet this man who'd so consistently in his life chosen love over fear, and that he was 92, could no longer, actually has not been able to walk, or has not been able to stand up for, I uh, don't know how, how many years, 40 years or something, and so all he can do is walk a little and lie down, and uh, just the presence that was there through a lifetime of keeping, making the choice of love over fear, love over fear, love over fear. And really, um, really extraordinary. So I want to just, in in a way, actually, now that I mentioned fear, take a little bit of a tangent, uh, uh, because some people have been have been saying that fear fear has been coming up in the practice, and uh, and anyway, there's this relationship between fear and love. So I just want to say a little bit about working with fear. Uh, as I mentioned, I think in the talk on samadhi, uh, sometimes where the mind feels like it's deepening and opening into kind of new new states, new new senses of openness uh, or depths, and sometimes with that a fear will come up. A fear will come up. Some of the time, uh, there's these two things kind of going on at once. There's a sense of the new space and the openness of that, and maybe the you know, the the, uh, the 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 loveliness of that even, and the fear, and at the same time they're there. If the fear isn't that strong, uh, I mean sometimes there's no fear, but if the fear isn't that strong, uh, it's possible not to ignore the fear, but also just to kind of tip the mind over a little bit, tip the awareness over a little bit, 
to go into uh, the loveliness, just incline the mind to what's pleasant there. And even if it's just very non-dramatically pleasant, give the mind some, some sense of enjoyment of um, something that it can trust there. Not pushing away the fear or ignoring it, but can be really skillful if that's if that's uh, if that feels like it's going on in the practice. Uh, if the fear is really strong, then it needs turning to and working with. And, uh, and sometimes, of course, fear has nothing to do with the practice or whatever. So I just want to briefly go into working with fear a little bit. So often we run away from fear, and uh, we, we don't even stop to wait and, and investigate a little bit. What actually is this that I'm running away from? And what actually is fear? Um if we go into it a little bit more clearly, you can see fear is, and one way of breaking it down, is fear involves some unpleasant physical sensations, you know, the heart pounding or the tummy butterflying or whatever. And unpleasant physical sensations and the reaction to them, they're being unpleasant. Usually, not always, some thoughts which are generally unpleasant, uh, spinning around, and the reaction to them. So body sensations, unpleasant and the reaction, the thoughts, un- unpleasant and the reaction, and then, then something a bit more subtle, a kind of constriction of the mind, a constriction of consciousness. It feels like consciousness kind of shrinks down with fear and becomes very small. And we don't generally like having a small consciousness. We, we enjoy more a spacious uh, kind of consciousness, and so that constricting of the consciousness uh, is also experienced as unpleasant, and there will be a reaction to that, generally a reaction of aversion. Not to be anal, but that that kind of constellation uh, is is what makes up fear. And just to mention that, just to go into that as, uh, in order to have ways in to work with fear so that we can get hold of a piece and begin working with it, rather than just being overwhelmed by this mass of fear, which is often the case. So what is fear? Beginning to get a handle on it. What is our relationship with fear? What's our relationship with fear? Uh, Generally, it's aversion. It's unpleasant and we flee it. It's... uh, we have fear of fear. This is, this is very common. There's fear around. We're actually afraid of fear. It's so unpleasant that we're running away from it. In practice, we can uh, begin working with fear in a different way so that we gradually learn to accommodate fear and gradually, slowly, over time, learn to have a confidence with fear, with the presence of fear. This is one thing that's lacking. Fear comes up and we're afraid of it. We don't feel confident with it. If it's possible to actually practice in a different way, uh, even instead of trying to be so mindful of the fear, practicing a complete, if possible, as complete as, as complete as possible, a total acceptance of the physical sensations of fear so that consciousness or awareness feels like it's actually more spacious than the fear. The the fear sensations can be there in a spacious awareness. 
and they're just allowed, they're just allowed, they're welcomed even. So this really is a practice. And over time, one of the things that can develop is we really begin to feel like it's just some unpleasant sensations. Uh, awareness, I can accommodate this, I can accommodate this. And it's possible for the unpleasant sensations to be there without any uh, constriction of the mind or paralysis or freaking out or anything like that. It's really a practice, but it's, it's a genuine possibility. So usually the relationship, as I said, to fear is, is aversion, and it's fleeing the unpleasant. That fleeing actually makes the fear increase. It's not a neutral, the aversion is not something neutral. This is really important. So our aversion to things is not a neutral, uh, not a neutral element. When we flee fear, which is understandable, but when we flee it, when we're averse to it, it actually makes the fear increase. It makes it feel more difficult. So this fleeing, this aversion, is part of the constellation of fear. When we flee the physical sensations, where, where do we flee to? We don't like the physical sensation. Where do we go? We go straight up into the mind, which is already spinning with thoughts, and that energy goes into the mind, into the thinking, and just adds to the kind of whirlwind up there. Uh, the thoughts spiral. They're generally not helpful anyway at that point, and we get an increase in fear. So this reaction to fear and anxiety the reaction to anxiety is actually part of the anxiety itself. It's not that there's anxiety and now I have whatever reaction to it. The fear of the fear, the fleeing of it, the aversion to it, is actually part of the fear itself. They're not two separate things. If I can learn through practice to really welcome the sensations of fear, I'm actually taking away that reaction of aversion taking away the reaction of aversion. And I see, I'll see, through practice, the fear cannot support itself. It cannot support itself without my reaction of aversion. It cannot. This is not to take my word for it. To see in one's own practice, fear needs my fear of it. Fear needs my aversion to it. Otherwise, it cannot support itself. So, and uh, to see when fear is around, because it's very normal, it's very human, uh, am I putting a pressure on it? Am I pushing it away, a pressure for it to be different? Am I judging myself that it's around? Boy, I'm really going backward now. I'm a, a crappy meditator. I should probably just uh, leave these good people to get on with it and, <laughs> and go home. Now, what am I telling myself? What am I concluding about the presence of fear? Um, that judging of myself is putting a pressure on, and that pressure is another factor that will build the fear. It's another factor that adds fuel to the fire of fear. What am I... Thinking, what am I believing it says about me that there's fear there? 
So rather, can, can we actually shift and see the humanity of fear? That it's such a human thing to have fear. It's actually built into our, you know, whatever, genetic makeup or whatever. It's built into our biology. It's very human. Uh, it's true that a lot of it is unhelpful and irrelevant, but the actual mechanism of fear is very human. Can we actually just open to the fact of the humanity of it? and bring some kindness to ourselves. Meta to oneself, at that moment when I have fear, I'm giving meta to myself. Who is the self right then? The self is with fear. That's who I am. And so it's not the self when this fear goes. It's the self right now with the fear. On a, on a sort of larger scale, you know, we think about fear in our lives and how much of it is actually unnecessary and irrelevant and really not helpful and really just getting in the way. And think how much fear is is um, is there because of future thinking, worrying about the future. Will I be okay? Will this happen? Will that not happen? Whatever. And so to really, a huge, really deep part of practice is actually asking ourselves, I'm worried about the future, and notice fear of the future. Do I actually know genuinely how to take care of the future, what that really, really, really means, to take care of the future? What, what is it that leads to our well-being and happiness, really, really? And this is, this is, this is, um... This is a, you know, to really understand that uh, what leads to happiness, what takes care of the future, to understand that kind of deeply, not just intellectually, in, in, the, in the cells, in the bones, that's, that's to me a sign of very mature practice. So, you know, we're inundated with all this advertising, or you need this and you need that, and just the basic things which most of us take for granted. We even want a nice house, or a nice relationship, a nice career, and this and that. And just to really understand, really, what is it that leads to happiness? What is it that leads to well-being? And the Buddha puts enormous emphasis on this question, really understanding and really living this question. What is it that leads to well-being? And so all the things that we can kind of get off track with that, what other people think of me, or what, you know, it's, it's endless. That what other people think of me does not lead to well-being. Does not, cannot lead to well-being. No way. It only leads to a, 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 re- a repetition of anxiety and, and tightness. So what does, what does lead to happiness? How do we take care of the future? And the Buddha talks about this, and it's through the cultivation of those beautiful qualities of mind and heart. They will be our treasure, our, our fruit, throughout our life and at our deathbed. So what we're doing here, building love and compassion as habits of the mind and the heart, this is the real treasure. And you know, all the other lists, mindfulness and equanimity and joy and this and that. The cultivation we take care of the future and also the uh, in relationship to the present. We worry about the future, but if the relationship to the present is okay, is... is uh, open, interested, present, uh, alive, caring, 
and the future tends to take care of itself. As I say, I, I really do think it's a sign of real maturity in practice to really know that and live that. It's quite rare. It's quite rare. There's so much else that can distract us and pull us into, no, I need this. This, this is what I need. This is the security I need. This is what I need to take care of. There's really, really some maturity in practice to be clear about this. And it can move to a place where there's just much, much less worry about will I be secure when I get old? Will there be enough money? Will I be alone? Will my partner leave? Will they die? Will this, that, 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 that. Okay, anyway, as I said, that was a bit of a tangent. <laughs> but fear is important in relationship to love. And it's important anyway as human beings. So what I want to look at is how, as I said, how to incorporate the insight into meta practice. Uh, we can incorporate it and kind of use it as something that feeds and nourishes the meta in a way as, as a sort of background uh, to the meta practice. You can bring it in. So when we open up this door, how insight feeds meta and compassion, it's actually huge. The possibilities are... I uh, don't know if they're endless, but there is really there's a ton in there. So I just want to actually draw out uh, maybe three possibilities um, and talk a little bit about this anatta, what John talked about the other day, what we're mentioning quite a lot: this not self, this emptiness of self, no self. So. Um, love, uh, the, the development of matter, as some of you have already mentioned a little bit, but anyway, just as a, as a long-term view, this, this practice of metta can lead in the practice to a kind of um, dissolving of the boundaries between self and other. And there's a kind of, at, at times, and not to grasp at this, at times, uh, through the practice, through the deepening of the practice, there's a kind of dissolution and kind of oneness that comes in. And there's, there's just a sense of oneness, self and other, there's a kind of, instead of that separation, there's a oneness there. And this is, this is um, hugely valuable to the practice. I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful thing uh, for the heart to be able to have a sense of and open to at times. And it's not that we will live in a, in a state of oneness, because that's impermanent too. But anatta is a little bit different. There's a little bit, slightly different emphasis in, in the understanding. It's, it can be it can be tricky to understand it. So the Buddha talks about something called the three characteristics, which some of you may have heard of, and others maybe it might might be, might be new. Three characteristics of phenomena. Three characteristics of experiences of things, and they are impermanence. Change, uh, impermanence, uh, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, uh, and anatta, not self, not not me, not mine. And I'll, I'll go into these a little bit. So impermanence, uh, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, and not self, anatta. And it's interesting in the tradition, sometimes even in the commentaries, not in the Buddha's original teachings, but in the commentaries, and even now nowadays teaching. People 
have a view of the three characteristics as something that it's almost like you begin to open to in practice, and in opening to them, uh, the fact of death and impermanence and unsatisfaction, what descends is this kind of uh, great existential anguish and torment and, and fear and uh, sort of the whole existence begins to quake and uh, there's the renting of garments and the gnashing of teeth and <laughs> all this stuff. Uh, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't particularly buy that. I don't, I don't think it's really helpful for practice. Okay, sometimes it's true contemplating impermanence and, and things like that. There can be a kind of fear that comes in. Sometimes with the not self, a kind of fear coming, but that's not any end point, and it's not even that it has to be there in any dramatic way. Sometimes people begin contemplating impermanence, etc., and and they start getting really kind of frantic about things and take that as a view that, wow, my practice must really be going deep now. And uh, actually it's just a version of fear that's kicked in. It's not, it's not really that, that uh, helpful. Three characteristics are ways of looking, and I'll go into this, they're ways of looking in the moment at experience that lead to freedom and, le- and in our case, lead to love. They're ways of looking. They're kind of like wearing... Uh, looking at the world through particular kinds of lenses that lead to freedom. And this is what the Buddha is interested in. So go, I'll go through each, and there's also ways, uh, perhaps for us, the not-self one is particularly interesting. Um, so I'll go through each, and they all are, they all, in a way, can also lead to the not-self one. So I'll, I'll explain what I mean. I should actually say right right now. So I'm, I'm outlining some of the possibilities for practice. So if you're listening and you think, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, that's completely fine. The, the basic practice, what we're doing is, you know, there's no problems with that. You don't have to go complicating it if, if it feels like this is a complication or feeling like I'm not doing it right or anything like that. What I'm really doing is just offering some possibilities. And in a way, for some people, they will be workable uh, because of previous practice or whatever. For others, it would just be a sense of possibilities for the future. Possibilities, maybe a sense of how deep this practice of, of metta can actually go. The levels to which it can be taken. And so, you know, if I might say something, I feel like it's actually important to put out what the possibilities of practice are, even if they don't feel realizable and accessible for me right now, just so that uh, we don't diminish what the possibilities of practice are. So if you're listening and it just feels like interesting, but thank you, (laughs) forget (laughs) it, that's completely fine. Um, But also to feel free maybe sometimes to experiment with some of this. So first one, impermanence. Uh, all of these, there's, no, there's, there's many ways to go about them. Impermanence. One, one level of meaning is contemplating, being aware of, remembering death and uh, the context of our life uh, being so short in the context of the universe and the spans of the universe. So remembering death. Um, just inside, but the Buddha was uh, saying, monks, you should remember death or whatever. And uh, one monk said, uh, 
Every day I remember death, and he said, very good, but not good enough. <laughs> and then another monk said, uh, um, every, I don't know, every morning and evening I remember death, and he said, very good, but not good enough. <laughs> and so it went on, and, uh, and um, a monk said, every, every time I, uh, I, I don't know, um, <laughs> I, every time I, um, I, I walk somewhere, I remember death. And another monk said, every time I uh, exhale, I remember death. Good, very good, not good enough. <laughs> and then a monk said, every time I inhale, and every time I exhale, I remember death. And the Buddha said, they're very good. <laughs> <laughs> so just to... What it's pointing to is wearing some lenses that leads to freedom through which we look at life. This is what this is what uh, is interesting. It's not just something that, oh yeah, I remember this thing we're supposed to think about impermanence and death occasionally or something. It's actually looking at the current moment through the lens of impermanence. So one meaning of impermanence is death and, and what, what I might call vastnesses of time. So... Uh, I think the universe is 13.7 billion years old, which is, you know, just really long time. <laughs> it's, it's staggeringly vast. Our lives, are <laughs> our lives are incredibly short. You know, 60 years if we're lucky, uh, 80, 100 if we're really lucky. It's, it's, it's tiny. Can we actually see this moment right now, right now, this moment through the lens of our, our, our death. We don't know what came before, you know, theories and religious theories aside. We don't know what comes afterwards. This moment here, colour, light, sound, is in the context of death and that kind of vastness. In, can, can you get a sense of the moment through that lens? Now, this is a practice. This is one possibility of practice. Uh, sometimes that will bring up fear, but sometimes there's a way of just being with it uh, that actually opens up into something else. And that's what we're interested in, this opening up into something else. Not, we're not particularly interested in building fear, like I said. Is it possible to be doing the meta practice and have this awareness of death and vastness as a backdrop? Is it just a reminder? Our own and others. And what might happen if that's the if we're doing that, if we're practicing that way? What might then happen to the heart and the heart's relationship with self, with other, with life? Okay, so these are possibilities to play with. If not on this retreat, then you know, uh, on your thirtieth meta retreat, <laughs> it's just possibilities I'm pointing to. What happens in the context of the meta and compassion practice when we reflect? giving metta to the neutral person, the friend, the benefactor, the difficult person. They are subject to death. They are subject to death. And just having that as a, as a sort of running alongside or backdrop to the metta practice. What happens to the heart? What can happen to the metta? They are also subject not just to death, but to the uncertainty and change that is, is in a way woven into the fabric of of the moment of our lives. They don't know what the next moment will bring, what will what will happen to the mind, to the body. 
can that consciousness too, it's like just a quiet reminder, can that be woven into the metta practice? I'm talking about the possibility of just taking the whole thing to, to a whole other level, really. So there's death, there's the uh, vastness, there's the contemplation of all of us being subject to uncertainty. When, if through our insight meditation practice or whatever, we're actually contemplating impermanence, we have we have a, a current of that contemplation going on. What we can notice is it's very rapid kind of impermanence, and this is one of the, one of the doors. And for for some, it's the easiest door actually into anatta. When I look at myself, what I call myself and my life, my sense of it at first sight, the sense of the self, is something fixed and something that's lasting. I'm the same self that I was yesterday and that I was 20 years ago and I will be the same in 20 years' time. But when I look more closely, more microscopically, I actually can't find anything there that, that stays the same, that doesn't change. Everything is changing. You can get a sense that this, this self is actually... It's, it, it's not what I think it is. There's nothing that I can find that's fixed in that way. So again, if one has, uh, if one's used to contemplating this way, particularly sometimes in the course of metta practice, you can just bring in that contemplation. So in a way, one's sitting or walking, doing the metta, and just a little bit more space to the awareness, including the change that's going on right then, the moment-to-moment change and the unfindability of self, the unfindability of a fixed self. In that space uh, of, of what opens up, because the, the sense of solidity of self has given way a little bit, in that space, again, more meta can come in. It's, it's possible. The whole other level of meta can come in. Possible to explore. Pl- explore. Possible to play with. Another possibility, and I'm just actually going through a lot of territory very quickly, to t- really just to let go of what you know just doesn't feel relevant, and maybe 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 to take a few pieces or one piece or whatever with impermanence. When I look again at my experience and what I call myself, all I actually see is a perception, a perception of a body sensation, a perception of a sight, a sound. I can't find anything else but. Uh, perceptions of things, perceptions of things, or a thought or an emotion. All I see, there's nothing else. To have a perception uh, requires something to perceive. And I see, there's no, I can't find a self, and all I find is these moments of perception. It's almost as if I, the I, is nothing else but these moments of perception. Because perception takes a world to perceive, outer or inner, it means that this self, being only perception, is nothing, is not separate from the world. This, I don't, this is not easy to understand, I know, but um, all, all, I, all I see is moments of perception. Those moments of perception are, are part of the world and part of me. I cannot separate. If I can open to that sense of non-separation, in the non-separation comes the love. A whole deeper sense of love, possibility.
oneself. First characteristic, impermanence and change, death. Second one, dukkha. So this this means uh, unsatisfactoriness or suffering in its very broad sense. Uh, one reflection is that, again, we're actually all in the same boat with this. We are all subject to dukkha, subject to uh, the difficulties of life, to the struggles of life, to the, the problems and the sufferings of life. Sometimes just dropping that thought in, so this is much simpler now, as you're doing the metta and you just drop in the thought of, we, sh- we share that, we are all in the same boat with Dukkha. It's a, uh, it's a factor of life, it's a fact of existence. Just dropping in the sense of we are all in the same boat. What does that do to the heart? What will that do to the metta? As I um, mentioned in one of the talks, uh, can also begin to notice something with clinging. So clinging meaning constricting ourselves around something, pushing something away because we don't like it, because it's unpleasant, pulling it towards us, uh, clinging, that whole thing. can notice when the clinging is there, what happens to the heart? So just to notice this, it's like an experiment. When there's clinging, the heart closes, sometimes just a little bit. And you can actually feel that if you, sometimes just to put the awareness in the center of the the chest area, just very lightly, and notice when there's clinging there, there's a slight closing, or, or a large closing. When the clinging goes, the heart center opens. And just to uh, to notice that. So another possibility is to be doing the metta practice or the compassion practice when we move to it. To be in the moment doing that, again, broaden the attention a little bit, broaden the attention a little bit, and just be aware of if there is clinging to anything, to a body sensation, to a sound, uh, pushing it away, struggling with something, to an emotion, whatever, to a train of thought. Is there clinging there? And if there is, is it possible to actually just relax and release that clinging? And in so doing, the heart opens. So to be doing the metta practice with actually a slightly larger sense of awareness that's aware of whether there's clinging or not, and just releasing. Just re- keep releasing the clinging as a way of, um, of opening the heart. So that's in itself a practice to do that. Um, the way in usually is to have again this sensitivity to the whole body, subtle sense uh, to a sensitivity to the subtle sort of sense of the whole body. That subtle sense of the body will reflect when clinging is around. It will cramp up or constrict, sometimes in very subtle ways. You can pick up on that in the in the slightly broader awareness as one's doing the metta, and just relax it. And in so doing, the clinging relaxes. The struggle relaxes and the heart opens. When there's a push and pull, a clinging, we're pushing away what we don't like, what's unpleasant, or pulling towards ourselves what we want, what's pleasant. When that's going on, uh, there is suffering with what's pleasant or unpleasant. And that's the insight of this characteristic, it's the insight of Dukkha. The suffering depends not on the thing, it depends on the struggle, on the push or the pull. 
to feel this and to see it. When there's push and pull there, there, there's constriction, there's suffering. When we relax that, there's release, there's ease. And you can feel this. And there's also love. There's also love in the absence of clinging. But as I mentioned the other day, the self, the self-sense, the ego sense, is empty. It doesn't exist by itself, of its own steam, of its own support. It actually depends on struggling with something, on clinging, on pushing away or pulling. That is, it, it, it needs that food. And we can see, as we, we're in this more open space with the metta, let go of some clinging, if you feel it, if it's possible. Just relax that, the body sense, relax the clinging. The actual sense of self uh, quietens. In the quietening of the sense of self, the quietening of the sense of separation from other. Because self and other go together. Less separation, more love. So that would be how working it on the dukkha uh, uh, angle to come into the anatta, seeing that the self is actually dependent on pushing and pulling. It's empty. And then we can uh, go into the not-self in, in a more direct way. It's anatta in a more direct way, in the third characteristic, in a more, more direct way. And so this is, this is important to understand. We're not trying to destroy the self, like ego uh, destruction, or get rid of the self, or or dissolve it in some way, or even mm-hmm. kind of merge it into some cosmic sense of something. Uh, sometimes, and in really deep practice, there can be a sense of the, the uh, just merging into uh, a oneness, or merging into a kind of infinite love. And that's at very deep levels, that's possible. That possibility is, is, is uh, you know, is a treasure. It's a treasure. It's something really to be valued and explored uh, in very deep practice. But it's actually is not quite the same as anatta, what we're what we're aiming for. Uh, valuable as it is, rather we want to understand something. We want to understand something about this self, and understand it in a way that it brings freedom. And and it's difficult. It it it's. Uh, it takes time to understand this concept of anatta. It's not something that comes easy uh, or simple, even if we can kind of get it intellectually, to really get it at a heart level where it's making a difference to our lives. It's, it's something that takes time, absolutely it takes time. And so not to um, kind of, uh, again, worry that, oh, I'm not understanding this yet, or whatever. It really, it really takes time, anatta. What a terrible practice I have because I don't understand it yet. Uh, there's a a story from the the, the Jewish tradition Um, it was uh, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement which is the the holiest day in the year and when you sort of um, what's the word Uh, open your heart and and your your your, um, uh, wrongdoings etc to God and and, and the forgiveness of that it was the holiest day of the year and it was in the synagogue, and the rabbi's there, and he, everyone's praying, and he suddenly sinks to the floor and starts beating his chest and saying, I am nothing, I am nothing. And then the cantor, the, the guy who sort of leads the singing in, in the choir, 
Then he sinks to the floor and stops beating his chest. I am nothing. I am nothing. And then the janitor, the guy who kind of cleans the toilets and things, he sinks to the floor and says, I am nothing. I am nothing. And so the cantor turns to the rabbi and says, Look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> there's there's a way of all this not self business where actually the self just grabs hold of me <laughs> and makes a whole other you know, I'm more selfless than you, I understand whatever. Not, not to grasp too tightly at it. It really, really, really does take time to understand it. And there's all kinds of levels of understanding it. Just to um so we're just putting it out there in whatever kind of way that it can find its way in is fine. So with the anatta, again, practicing ways of looking that that lead to freedom, that lead to release, and that lead to love. Um, so with the anatta working in directly, it's a way of looking at experience. Usually we look at experience, a thought comes up, uh, either we're completely identified with it and we say it's me or it's mine or a body sensation is there it's me or mine or an emotion me or mine sometimes we're actually conscious that we're doing that we're conscious that we're saying yeah of course it's me and mine of course it's my knee who, who, who the hell else's knee is it uh, <laughs> or of course it's my thought you know uh, sometimes very conscious. Most of the time, it goes on without us even being aware of it. We're just saying, me, mine, me, mine, me, mine, me, mine. Virtually uninterrupted uh, throughout our life. So what the Buddha is saying is not so much a sense of uh, making a philosophical statement, there is a self, there isn't a self. And actually, he tended to ignore that question. So it's not the appropriate question. He'd say, rather, can you practice in a certain way? And that way is... Can you look at the present moment experience and actually just unhook the me and mine? The me and mine goes and puts its hook of identification into everything. And all the, all the difficulty and all the, all the problem that comes out of that. And actually says, so can you just unhook and regard the moment's experience, the body sensation, the thought, the emotion, uh, whatever it is, as not me, not mine. So it's not making any a metaphysical statement about the nature of self or no self or whatever is, is, is pointed to a way of practicing that leads to freedom and it really is a practice it takes some time so again uh, a number of people have mentioned and it's very common because it's very human uh, a kind of judging mind come in and uh, often it's judging of ourselves and the comparing mind comes in into, uh, in this case, the retreat situation. In a way, retreat is just a mirror of of what goes on in uh, in our lives. It's just we're seeing a bit more closely closely the kinds of thoughts that we have anyway. The comparing, the judging. Uh, so we're sitting here and, and we think, uh, you know, got a bit. Everyone else is probably in the 134th jhana by now. <laughs> you know, I'm still struggling away with the hindrances or whatever. Or actually, they're, they're probably they're probably all enlightened, and they could probably go home. They're just staying, so I don't feel too bad, <laughs> or whatever. 
this is very common, you know, and often it's us we, we put down, or it's others, you know, it's others we say, you know, uh, we look at someone and we say, call yourself a meditator or whatever. You know, it, it comes in either way. It's the same, it's the same deal, it's the same deal. Comparing, measurement, judgment, this is part of what self, the self-sense is. It's, it's like the other side of the coin of the self-sense. It's what self-sense does. In a way, it has to do it. Self, um, you could say self-feeds on measurement. It gets its oomph and its energy from measuring, from comparing, from judging. That's how it actually creates a separation between this and that. This is me and that isn't. And it does it by comparing, by measuring. So to, to establish a difference between self and other, I need to compare, I need to judge. So it's, it's woven very tightly into, into the fabric of what self-sense is and what, what it is to be human, really. It's woven into ignorance. The not to um, not to underestimate the power of the meta for working with this. So judgment thoughts, comparing thoughts, they're thoughts, and there's a certain groove that the mind gets into comparing, judging. Meta is another thought, and gradually, one way of looking at what we're doing is actually establishing another groove, a much more wholesome and helpful groove to the mind. It's actually about connection and and uh, and uh, acceptance and kindness, not judgment, not comparison. Slowly over time, the groove of metta will uh, will be more established than the groove of of comparison and judgment and measurement, and that's that's a real possibility. In the moment when comparison is happening, to kick the meta practice in, to inject a bit more energy into the meta practice is also helpful because it's like using the thinking that's already going on and just saying, I'll use, I'll use the thinking energy because it's already going on, but I'll use it in a wholesome way and I just plug away at that until the, the comparing and, and all that just begins to lose energy. So really to trust the power of the meta practice and, and the compassion as we get onto it. At a deeper level, though, uh, or the judgment thoughts, it, they're not, again, they're not me, not mine. It's like, uh, they're just thoughts. They're just arising out of nowhere and disappearing back into nowhere. It's like having a radio on a very bad radio station that's just putting out these thoughts. They're not me, not mine. The more, in time, we can practice seeing, uh, seeing our thoughts that way, the more freeing more free and we can really have a freedom from judgment in life a freedom from believing or being involved in any any of that stuff it's it's not nothing that i'm talking about today is abstract i'm talking about very real possibilities uh, it's completely possible for everyone in this room to be uh, totally free of judgment self-judgment of the comparing mind of the measuring mind it's, it's a very real possibility of practice. So the not me, not mine is actually looking at the moment's experience and just quietly regarding it as not me, not mine, whether it's a thought or a body sensation. So again, you're doing the meta. You can just, if you're, if you have a little skill already in this area, what already seems to be happening, experiment. You're doing the meta. You're doing the compassion. Bit more space. What else is happening? Body sensation, thought, whatever. 
just seeing it as not me, not mine. Including the awareness, because we also will then have an identification with awareness, which is a more subtle identification. Can let go of that identification. And that uh, emptiness that opens up will be uh, imbued with love. If it's not imbued with love, it's actually barking up. Something's a little bit off balance with the practice, a little bit barking up the wrong tree. So with these three characteristics, one of the indicators that they're working properly is that they bring freedom and love, and not a sense of coldness and disconnection or fear, as I said before. And similarly, it's actually possible to direct the metta, the compassion towards other, another person, and actually regard them as uh, whatever is their experience, their is not me, not mine. In their case, they're actually uh, their what we call their aggregates, what the Buddha called aggregates, what makes up their experience is also not belonging to anyone. You would think, well, who is there to give love to? But somehow, it's possible that that actually just opens up a whole other level of love. Okay, I think I'm going to stop there. Um, and like I said, please, please, uh, just take what was relevant from that, which may be zero, <laughs> uh, and don't you know? Don't bring in the measurement. It's just, I just, uh, it may be a possibility that you may be able to work with some of that, uh, a little piece, one or two pieces. Partly, uh, it's important. I, I feel just for this stuff to be out there, and just for people to have a sense of the possibilities of, of the depth of, of the practice and, and the breadth of the practice. Um, and maybe something that uh, you want to revisit. revisit. You know, it doesn't, don't, uh, three weeks may seem like a long time, it's actually a very sh- short amount of time in relation to uh, metta and compassion, and particularly metta and compassion as a path to awakening. So, as that was fairly complicated, I think um, it might be good to have some questions, uh, if, if you like. And Felix, it's five o'clock if you, if you need to go. But, uh, if you don't need to, you're welcome to stay. So do So, d- difficult stuff that, I, that I've been talking about, I'm aware of that, and uh, um, not, not so easy to understand or, or even to work with, but uh, if there are any questions from that, or, or any other questions any, anyway about the practice, uh, or, or, or whatever. Regarding impermanence mm. and contemplating on death, yeah. in various readings and other things I've gotten in the past, it's suggested sometimes to consider different circumstances of fear death 
mm-hmm. to help you know remain in the preciousness of the moment yeah. thinking about different ways of dying like I often ponder like some of the recreational habits I have put me at risk a lot and I think about what what would be there like falling off of a cliff or things like that and I find it really centers me sometimes mm-hmm. and other times brings that fear up a lot yeah. again yeah I'm just curious of your thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can talk about that kind of contemplation of death as as a separate thing. So let's talk about that first. So sometimes in the contemplation of death, and it should, I think it should be part of practice. So it's not something morbid, you know. And people think, oh, I'm going to do that. It's a bit depressing, or whatever. Um, sometimes in doing that, it will bring a real centering, a real sense of the preciousness of life, the beauty of it, the, the wonder of it. Sometimes it will bring up fear. Um, I, I would say that, just in terms of that practice, to actually keep working with it until it, it, it brings almost a sense of freedom with it as well, preciousness and freedom. And the fear is kind of just a stage that one works through. In the context of what I've been talking about today, bringing it into the meta practice, if it brings up the fear, it's not the right thing to bring in at the moment. You know, so you might bring it in and it actually brings a sense of preciousness of the gift of life or whatever, and in that sense can deepen a love. But if you bring it in and actually it just is stirring up some fear and stuff, it's actually going to close the matter down a little bit and I would uh, you know, leave it for, for, that, for that time and, and go to something, either come back to a very basic meta practice or, um, or find some other contemplation that, that will help. But, is it? Yeah. Um, so again, to reiterate, just being with the basic practice is already plenty, so you don't, you don't necessarily have to start adding things, we'll just put it that way. Yeah, okay. yeah. Does the understanding of one characteristic lead to the help and the understanding of the other characteristics? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, so pe- people generally tend to have a favourite, and uh, it's the one that they can kind of understand the easiest, and also their particular uh, one that leads to a sense of freedom for them. And and I don't know if human beings are roughly divided into three. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but actually, they probably aren't. They probably aren't, is my guess. The anatta one, directly, is a bit more difficult to understand. So, for example, as I was saying, with impermanence, if we just take impermanence, which is actually probably the easiest one to understand for most people. Impermanence, obviously, is impermanence, so it understands that. If I see that things are impermanent, I begin to see that they're, they cannot give me a reliable sense of satisfaction. They cannot fulfill me in any ultimate or or lasting way. So I begin to get an insight into the, into the dukkha characteristic, the unsatisfactoriness. So if I'm contemplating impermanence, something comes up, some moment experience, a thought or an emotion or a body sensation, and I can see it's impermanent, therefore automatically it's unsatisfactory in that sense. And these aren't, these contemplations are not big... Um, it, at first they might be quite cumbersome like this big, right, this contemplation I'm going to plunk it down on my practice and sort of, uh, you know, it's this big thing it, it can get to the point that, that they're just it's almost like wearing, wearing some glasses you don't even realise that you have them on it's very light, very just in the moment 
uh, that's how we're seeing. That's how we're seeing, and there's a freedom that comes with it. If I see impermanence and I have a sense of unsatisfactoriness, there's, there's a letting go there. I let go. I let go. And again, doesn't lead to any kind of coldness or or uh, disconnection from life. There's actually a warmth that fills in. And then impermanence might lead to um, a sense of un- an understanding of anatta, because, like I said, I look and I can't find anything that's not changing. I absolutely cannot find anything that does not change. And um, uh, the sense, as I said, of self is fixed, lasting, permanent, steady. And I look inside, all I see is impermanent. Impermanence, therefore, no fixed self. No, no, it's not really real in the way I thought it was. All I could say there is is a kind of continuum of mind moments, continuum of experiences through time. So impermanence can lead to the, to the others like that. Yeah, I, okay, I understand all that. Okay. Let's say impermanence is what I understand. Yeah, guys. okay. That's, and maybe I'm just judging on some level mm-hmm. the other two characteristics. Are they going to be at a lower level of understanding? or Than if you did them directly? Yeah, then they, they came directly. Or does, is that just a, a uh, major yeah. mind? It's, is it just a what? A, major, uh, a judging mind. Uh, it might be. It might be. I don't know. You, <laughs> you'd have to answer. That. <laughs> um, I I feel I feel that the understanding of anatta through impermanence is not quite at the same level of of depth of understanding as understanding anatta directly. But it 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 can be enough to free, and it's freedom we're interested in rather than a certain badge of uh, whatever. So it may be enough. It may be enough. And if that's your one, and if that's what works for you for anatta, that w- that can bring enough freedom. But there's ways of understanding anatta that just go even beyond the notion of impermanence, just into a whole other, a whole other depth. And if that's accessible, then that's great. If it's not, it's fine. There's enough freedom in that. There's plenty of freedom in that. And can that second way of understanding anatta come through more practice, or or what brings this about? Um, yeah, more practice and certain kinds of o- orientation in practice, asking certain questions, looking at certain relationships, and uh, um, or or for instance, practicing directly in this this way of just regarding things as not me, not mine, not me, not mine. Which you may be able to move towards through the impermanence, in the sense I can't find anything, therefore it doesn't belong to any fixed sense of self, therefore it's not me, not mine. Uh, but working in that more direct way can can bring a bit more depth. Um, I don't know if everyone would agree with that, uh, teachers and whatnot. But I, I, that's that's my view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. 
Uh, so just to, to, to sort of amplify a little bit what Rachel said, so in working with this characteristic of dukkha directly, there is an awareness of clinging in, in, the, in, the, in the sense of what's going on. There's a contraction, one relaxes that. Uh, then there's, there can be a sense of release, relief. And then what might show itself is a kind of more subtle, deeper level of clinging. And then one can just go on in this way, and the mind, the awareness just deepens and deepens and deepens. That on its own is absolutely fantastic way to practice. There's just a deepening and a more and more release, more and more calm, and it goes back and forth between opening and a sense of contraction, opening and a sense of contraction, deeper and deeper levels. So the question was, if it can go deeper and deeper levels, and you're in the context of meta practice, how do you know when to uh, kind of, you know, jump off the <laughs> off the elevator, so to speak? <laughs> um, so it it doesn't really matter. I would probably say just whatever, if you're opening your practice out a bit, just whatever clinging you notice, just see if you can let go in that, and then and then rather pick up on the love that's there and be in the love with slightly more spacious awareness and then you'll notice more clinging perhaps and you can let go of that or you may just want to do it a little bit uh, just as a way of kind of kick-starting some metta so uh, you're, the heart's opening because there's less clinging because you've let go of it and you're just accessing some metta and then you can leave it at that and just be in the metta and maybe revisit it occasionally but I wouldn't worry too much about the levels but in this context the metta is the important thing so you're just using it as a way of deepening the metta you know what I'm mm-hmm. Is that answer? Mm-hmm. Okay, Thanks. good. Is there another one, John? Is it? No, I'm fine. Oh, okay. not exactly a question, it's just a reflection really of, um, I haven't been feeling any fear or anxiety, but when you were talking about the fear and anxiety, <laughs> I was noticing quite a lot of anxiety. Mm. Well, one of the, you know, that's a common experience, you know, once that's brought up, it's, you know, it's sort of comes into consciousness. Mm. It's quite interesting, and then when you stop talking about it, you know, it went yeah. away. <laughs> Um, there's no object to it. Just Um. Could be, yeah. Could could be that that could happen in, in by the very mechanism that I was talking about. So that it's bringing it into mind. Maybe there's just. Uh, a memory of it or an image of it as I'm talking about, and then what's happening is a subtle um, aversion to it is kicking is kicking in, uh, which is natural, and that's enough to start the thing spiraling. And a lot of this stuff goes on kind of below the radar of consciousness. Yeah. So it's possible there was just the seed of it, and enough aversion kicked in because that's what we do with fear that it started something. Very possible. Can I ask a question? <laughs> When I talk about meta, does it go? <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs>
Sometimes it does. Yeah. <laughs> I feel a bit similar, actually, when you're talking about fear. Mm-hmm. And I want to say fear of what? Yeah, yeah. Because I hadn't been aware of fear either. Mm. And then when you mentioned fear of the future, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Knowing yeah. that yeah. made me realise it's a bit like Martin. Yeah. It was a bit of Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I hadn't associated it in the same way as fear sitting here. It's not been around yeah, no. it was like when you mentioned mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. yeah. and that's fine you don't have to go looking for it now in the practice <laughs> uh, it's funny as I was talking I was aware of a strange uh, feeling in the room as I was talking at the time anyway um, uh, yeah it, it can it's the same, same thing but how much of our fear is, is bound up with future what will happen what will happen to me will it be okay will it not be you know and so, to me, you know, the Buddha talks about practice and awakening being the great security, the, the secure, I've forgotten, you know, the great security inside. And then there's a feeling of this is what we can really trust, this is really where the security is. And then o- over time, you know, that, that all those other fears are just... Uh, it's, it's really a uh, possibility, yeah. But like I said, if there's no fear in practice, just, you know, <laughs> steam right ahead and don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, okay. I think the, f- the fear for me is very much, um, someone mentioned it, would become a real habit for me. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. you know, if in doubt, go to fear. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I hadn't realised that's what I was doing, but that's yeah. uh, what tended to happen. It wasn't go to anger, it was mm-hmm. go to fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when someone mentioned that, and to almost say, look, when it came up to kind of say, no, I'm not going to go that way mm-hmm. and maybe do mm-hmm. meta. Yeah. yeah. Really helpful. The only thing, the question is slightly, um, <clears throat> is how do I know I'm not repressing some real fear? Real you fear. You know, if I, I, I found it really <laughs> Sorry. It's my job, I can't help it. <laughs> I, find, I find the whole thing with the habit thing really helpful. It's yeah, like the yeah, amount yeah. of fear around has gone down. Mm-hmm. Great, great. And it's, it's, it, that, that's really helped. Yeah. But every now and again, I think, well, perhaps I'm just mm. kind of avoiding something else. But I think if it was really, yeah. it would come back. Yeah. Um, so, so a couple of things. Uh, fear can become a habit, absolutely, and we can actually go. And I have, you know, years ago in my life, got, almost gone through a phase of years when it seemed like anxiety and fear became a habit of of consciousness. Somehow, something slipped into a kind of groove where that was not a default, but so common. And often, there was nothing to be afraid of. There was no, nothing even happening. It just slipped into that. Or there were things that I amplified through fear. Uh, Meta is a huge antidote for that. Huge and. Uh, The, the less meta there is, the more chance of fear and anxiety kind of finding that groove and, and, and becoming a habit. The more meta, the less kind of soil fear has to, to, to establish itself as a habit. So real, real power in the meta practice. And also in the realisation, this is a habit uh, like, uh, no one's too young to un- understand this analogy, a, r- a record on a... <laughs> <laughs> Um, when I was when I was a music student uh, and I was a graduate music student and they had a music library this is a complete aside by something um, 
and the music library which had uh, records and CDs uh, that you could play and go listen to whatever piece the teacher told you to listen to and um, and they had CD players there and um, this was in, in the States and uh, some an undergraduate came in and had been given uh, a record of, of something to, to play to listen to and was trying to fit it in the CD player <laughs> <laughs> He had never, you know, was 18 and I had never seen a record before. And then completely mind-boggled that they actually had things on both sides. <laughs> yeah, that's completely wrong. Um, the understanding... <laughs> the... The, uh, the, the the sense of things getting into a groove and how much of what we what, what our life is is just grooves. The mind gets into habits, into habits. They can be wholesome, like metta. We can get into a groove of metta, a habit of metta, a habit of mindfulness, a habit of um, calmness. And we can get into, of course, grooves of fear, of judgment, of irritability, you know, etc., and we either feed or starve them. Those are Buddha's words. We feed or starve. And just to see that is already a huge insight. Just that much that things, mental uh, factors are, are habits or not that we can feed and starve. We, you know, think, and things have relationships. Like some of fear and love have a relationship. We feed fear, we starve love by, the na- by inherently in feeding fear. We feed love and we starve fear. And to, to begin seeing that relationship. And then the other thing I was going to say, what do you mean real fear? Uh, so that's a real question. So real fear to me is, um, you know, there's the rhinoceros charging at me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so can you want to say a little bit? No, I was just interested because you describe one way of working with fear mm-hmm. and feeling it. And, um, and sometimes there are things... Well, yes, well, whether there are things to fear, um, tends to be future things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tends to be future. And as we go a bit more in the last week, talking more about the emptiness of things, you actually see that, that there really is nothing to fear. But there's a very deep answer. That genuinely, there's nothing to fear. There's, there's no thing to fear. And, and I mean, right now, yeah, they're ca- it's caught up with future thinking. Doesn't it depend a bit on clinging? If you're in your mind you have a certain standard a certain mm-hmm. idea of what you want the future to be yes then the fear is coming from maybe it won't absolutely but mm-hmm. if there's no idea there's no conditioning of I want my future to be a certain way mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. totally uh, fear it can be fear of not having something having something yeah and there's a there's, there's a clinging to an idea of something some of that is good we can have we can cling to the idea of I want to grow in meta. I want to grow in calmness and that's a uh, you know, if we hold it lightly enough, that's okay. It's an image of our future. Like I was saying, what what do we need to cultivate to build, uh, to establish well-being, happiness, whatever word you want to use, to establish well-being. Um, and so some of that's okay, and it's it's it's, it's appropriate, and it's it's wise, and it's healthy. Um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.